Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is... Jonathan Pritchett. And today we're going to be responding to the amazing atheist. He's the amazing atheist, Jonathan. If you've been wondering which one's amazing, it's this one. He's right. the amazing atheist. And we're going to be looking at 10 Bible passages we'll just say that he doesn't like or thinks are wild or crazy. Mm-hmm. Stick with us. Just a thought, but maybe feminist icons should turn their attention away from pop culture and video games for a second and turn their attention to the Bible. Because if any video game had the explicit message, women are stupid and inferior to men. The charge of sexism in the New Testament becomes an argument, I would argue, of the desperate and the uninformed. I love YouTube videos like this one. Well, this is in my in the Hunter uh, cataloging of atheist YouTube channels. I'll put the link to a video I did on that in the description called Four Variations of Atheist YouTubers. I would call this guy the provocateur. Um, atheist channels go about things differently, and this is a guy who I don't think is really all that interested. I could be wrong. I haven't seen his whole channel. He doesn't strike me as someone who's all that interested in putting together these robust arguments uh, to show that God does not exist or respond to arguments that God does exist or any of those sorts of things. Instead, what he wants to do is to basically mock uh, religion. Well, it's like it's like shock jock stuff. It's like he is the Rush Limbaugh of atheists. I know that'll bug him that I compared him to Rush Limbaugh, but you are the Rush Limbaugh of atheism. Yeah. So what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to go through what he has to say, and uh, we're going to bring in some help at one point to respond to some of what he has to say, aren't we? Uh, But here we go. Let's go ahead and start listening to the amazing. He's the, 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 the one that's amazing. Yeah. Here we go. The Bible. For some of us, it is a source of wisdom and inspiration. Amen. For others of us, it's um, an ancient anthology of anachronistic nonsense with more than its fair share. He had it right at ancient uh, anthology. And then anachronistic, no, I don't, it's it's not anachronistic. Anachronistic would be reading stuff back into the past. Yeah, right. Right? So what's anachronistic? Yeah, I don't know. But it is an ancient anthology, and it is a source of wisdom. And by the way... Uh, it's both of those things to many non-Christians as well, and even atheists. But anyway, um, it is an a- ancient anthology, that's true. Yeah. But it's not anachronistic nonsense. It's actually filled with wisdom for not just Christians, but non-Christians happen to read and enjoy the Bible and appreciate it what it is, even if they don't attach all the religious significance to it that you and I would. They can still appreciate it in the same way I can appreciate Sophocles. Now, my kids, when I told them what that was about, the Oedipus cycle, mm-hmm. they had their own kinds of, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah. Uh, you know, kills his dad, marries his mom, gouges out his eyes. You know, yeah. that's the, the briefest summary I can sure. give. And they're like, yeah, I want to read that. And I'm like, great, I want you to read that. Because there's a lot of crazy things in ancient literature. What but, we're gonna, what whoa, we're gonna, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. But guess what? There's a lot of crazy things in modern literature. Yeah, that's one true. of the most popular movies that has taken place over the past several years is about a bunch of kids that are thrown into a basically a, a gladiatorial field and told to kill each other. Yes. So, you know, uh, that's crazy. That's wild. Yeah, it's also a really good movie, and I understand a good book series. So yeah. the, the thing about it is, like with that, you would say to me, no, but it means something. You've got to look underneath and see what the author is trying to get at. And like we're going to see with some of the things that The Amazing Atheist mentions, uh, what he's doing is he's reading the bare, flat statement uh, like cooking your meal over excrement. And uh, what is that all about? Well, it's actually about something really deep and really meaningful. Yeah, the book of Ezekiel uh, is awesome, and I've never met anyone, Christian, atheist, Muslim, whoever, who have not said, yeah, that book is a wild read. Yeah. You know, whether you believe it's true or not, as a piece of literature, there's much to appreciate about the sure. book of Ezekiel. And a lot of people are like, yeah, that book's crazy. Yeah, like just because you don't believe something right. doesn't mean it's the worst thing ever. It still might have incredible merits on its own terms. Yeah, why, why is he not Why is he not commenting about Sophocles or, or any of the Greek tragedies that have some crazy stuff in it? Or, or, yeah. or why? It's like, a, it's like the Christopher Hitchens thing yeah. that I always say. 
I think that Christopher Hitchens' non-arguments were completely vacuous, and I think he misunderstood much of what his interlocutors who were Christians were saying. But I still understand that man knew how to write and speak incredibly well. I'm going to have fun editing this. Share yeah. of straight-up what <laughs> moments. For instance, number 10, Deuteronomy 21.18 through 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. So the penalty for being a gluttonous, drunken rebel is that you get stoned? Sign me up! Number nine. Okay, before we all go on to number nine, so what? he doesn't make any arguments. He's not trying to—he never says something like, because it said this, it shows that Yahweh is immoral or that the Mosaic law is immoral or whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Uh, but that's obviously the subtext, He just right? finds it shocking. Yeah. Right? And, and a lot course, of Christians do too. Read, if you read Deuteronomy, you know what's all over Deuteronomy? If you read Joshua, Judges, you know what's all over that? Just people stoning drunkards, drunkards and gluttons. It's just every page. That's what you find on every page. People just stoning. Actually, you don't find that at all. You know, it's like the it's like you know those commands about kill your you know you need to stone the disobedient child. All do you is that what you read about all over the New no, all it's over not. The Old Testament? No, it's, you never see an example of this ever happening right. in the Bible. And guess what? The person who would have gotten to have made the decision about whether this should happen is the kid's mother and father mm -hmm. who would take him before the council. So. What's the likelihood you're going to get a mother and father to agree that this should be done to this kid, right? And, and we don't know the age of the rebellious That's right. drunkard and glutton. So here's what uh, Copan has to say about it, Paul Copan from Is God a Moral Monster? When they, his father and his mother, chastise him, he will not even listen to them, Deuteronomy 21, 18. He's, he's a picture of insubordination, a glutton and drunkard. This serious problem would have had a profoundly destructive effect on the family and the wider community. Um, this son, probably a firstborn, would inevitably squander his inheritance when his father died. He would likely bring ruin to his present and future family. He was like a compulsive gambler who bets away his home and life savings right out from under his family's feet. Notice, though, that the parents don't take matters into their own hands. They confer with the city authorities who are responsible for keeping an orderly functioning society. The parents aren't in the picture any longer. They're not taking charge of punishment. Rather, the community carries out this exercise of social responsibility. And when it takes this drastic action, it's a tragic last resort to deal with this trouble. That's why it's important to note, Dr. Pritchett, that nobody, we don't have an example of this happening. And even though he's right that the parents aren't the ones that carry this out, the parents are the ones who would have had to have notified this. Right. So there are several lines of defense against this ever actually happening. It's it, well, let's say for the sake of argument, it did happen on occasion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the ancient world is not like the modern world. The, the, Copan is actually right here because we don't like to think about it. We think that our actions only affect ourselves and do ourselves harm. No, wrong. And in fact, in the ancient world and in a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of the modern world, <laughs> your actions don't just harm you. They, they harm others. And when you can't just go to the supermarket and replace food like you can now, and a lot of people can't because they don't have a lot of money. I mean, you're putting a lot of people in harm's way in, in this kind of thing. And so you have stiffer penalties. And this is not like a one-time offense and you do this. When you say rebellious, when you say drunkard, when you say glutton, this is a these are characteristics that somebody has fostered over time, could be even years. Right. You know? This is a person who is in blatant disregard for Yahweh's laws and for his parents' authority. One thing about honor uh, and, and shame... And for the communities. Well I was about to say, one know. of the things about honor and shame cultures is they understood rightly what it would do well for us in the 21st century Western world to understand today, which is that the basis for a functioning society is the family unit. So it's very important that we sustain the integrity of the family unit and take care of its stability. That's why, classically, adultery is 
a horrible, horrible thing. Why? Because we don't want you to get to have fun? No, it's not that. It's that it destroys the family unit. There are other things going on in our society right now that destroy the family unit. And then ultimately that has a trickle up effect that destroys the nation in general. Mm. Especially when you have a young uh, nation or a smaller nation like we had in Israel, there had to be steep penalties for crimes like this. This is the kind of young man who would have led a re- who could have led a rebellion later on. Uh, if enough people start thinking that it doesn't matter what the authorities say or what Yahweh says or what their parents say, then you have a rebellion on your hands, which is a major problem within the community. Also, let's remember with Israel, one of the important things is property laws, uh, keeping things in the right tribes and, and that sort of thing, because there's actually a very economical system here to keep things going the way they're supposed to go for a functioning society under Yahweh. And if this guy is squandering and ruining the family's stuff, and not following the rules, this is, again, destructive on the society. Hey, Braxton, yes or no? Is Deuteronomy the only suzerainty vassal treaty-type document in the ancient world? Is the law of Moses the only law code in the ancient world? No, but guess what? It's the most moral. That's right. (laughs) But is it the only one that has what would seem to modern Americans to be harsher penalties for infractions against the law? There are way harsher penalties in the other is that what you're asking? No, I'm just saying, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying they all do that. What this yeah, shows sure. is a complete lack of knowledge about not only ancient literature, but ancient civilizations, ancient cultures, different cultural norms. Not everyone is like 21st century uh, American amazing atheist type people, okay? The whole world is not like you. Uh, so again, so when I was saying, being somewhat facetious, saying I'm stupid, what I really mean is, uh, that's, a, that's a harsher way of saying, this guy is saying I'm ignorant. Or worse, he's feigning ignorance for the sake of entertainment rather than educating. You can be educational and entertaining at the same time. But he is demonstrating what I think is the problem with the education system in our country, that these people are like the amazing atheists, are ignorant of things. And two, they're, they're being kind of celebratory about it in the way that they just mock and deride uh, old literature. And I don't think that, I don't know, I'm a snob. I just don't think that's actually productive. Well, and as I've said before, uh, I think when I was responding to, um, oh, what's the other guy's name? Mr. Atheist. Um, I I remember pointing out there that it's a somewhat provincial, temporally and geographically provincial way of looking at things that you think your culture is the best one with the highest morality and, and you know, the utopian or heading toward the moral utopia. Oh, thank God. So he's the snob, not me. Right. I mean, the thing about it is— We'll go with that. Yeah. He's the the elitist snob who thinks he's so much better and that his time and his place and his culture and his— his understanding and his worldview is the better one. Right. You think it's horrible, the idea that someone who's in rebellion and a drunkard and all that should have a steep penalty threatened against them, and maybe it was carried out with some people. You think that's so horrible, but yet I think people back then would have thought it was pretty darn horrible that we slaughtered children in their mother's womb. Yeah. You know. And guess what? If you are a 21st century, extremely liberal Westerner um, atheist— there are things that you value and believe right now that 100 years from now, people will have looked at you as a bigot for having believed those things. Or barbarian. And, and you would think, wait, wait, what are you talking about? But you know what? The fact of the matter is, this is a provincial, temporal, uh, have a little bit of humility about the fact that you're not the only culture that's ever existed. Yeah. All right, uh, let's keep trucking here. Number nine. Nine, First Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Let the women learn in silence with all subjugation, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Just a thought, but maybe feminist icons like Anita Sarkeesian should turn their attention away from pop culture and video games for a second and turn their attention to the Bible. Because if any video game had the explicit message, women are stupid and inferior to men and should just shut mouths. If a video game... Is that what that passage said? I didn't hear that anywhere in that I, passage. I didn't hear that anywhere in the passage either. But this guy And we're not talking about the wider culture anyway. We're talking about ecclesiological, church-related matters yeah. in the community of faith. Had yeah, that where, message. Where in the ancient world, Paul was saying something radical in the very first sentence he read. 
The women should learn. Right. right. Okay. Not in the subtext, not according to someone's interpretation, but explicitly and undeniably, then that video game would be removed from store shelves across America. But if it's in the Bible, then everyone just really nods their heads and says, No, nah, there's no reason to play all that. He doesn't make an argument. But what we are going to do is we actually I don't have... even think that argument's valid. I, there's all kinds of video games out there with things much worse than the Bible has. Yeah. And the Bible does get pretty gritty, but not quite as gritty as Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, so... Well, I mean, in Grand Theft Auto, you can get points for slapping prostitutes. So Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Well, here's what we're going to do. We actually have, both of us, a friend by the name of Nick Quint, who is a graduate or student at Fuller. He is a graduate. He's about to be a Ph.D. candidate at um, whatever that school in Michael Bird. Michael Bird's going to be his uh, dissertation. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I can't, sorry, I can't remember the name of that. Now, here's why we're going to do this, because this objection was actually raised in the video I made alone to Mr. Atheist, and I gave sort of a complementarian. Uh, for those that don't know, there's two views on this, broadly speaking. There's the complementarian view, which says that men and women are equal in value, but have different roles. Mm -hmm. And there's the egalitarian view uh, that says, no, 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 in the church uh, and everywhere else, women are free to do work any profession, do any job, do whatever a man can do. If a woman can do it, she can do it, right? Now, yeah, and there's many shades between the two from yeah. uh, extremes, whatever. I'm uh, what's called a soft complementarian. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, yeah, I'm a soft commentator. Right. You're an egalitarian. Yeah, look at us. We don't agree on this issue. And and yet Christianity is still true. Right, and the world hasn't, the seminary hasn't blown up, and the world hasn't fallen apart, and, you know, he's my best friend in the whole world. I could have just let uh, my best friend in the whole world, Jonathan Pritchett, explain this, uh, because he's an egalitarian and very uh, academically solid. But since we had Nick, and Nick has a whole show about this with his wife. What's it right. called? Uh, Split, Split frame, frame of reference. reference. And since this is really his... One of his major yeah. issues, and it's not a, I, it's not. So there's the split frame reference, yeah. and then there's the synergist podcast. Yeah. Both of those you should check out yep. and look for books coming from Whitfin Stock by Nick Quint in the coming days. But we're going to go ahead and kick it over to Nick for a few minutes right now. <sighs> Thanks for the tag in Braxton. Always a good time. So first things first. Mr. Amazing Atheist believes that 1 Timothy 11:14 teaches, in his words, explicit sexism. He thinks a few verses cited say the following, women are, and I should quote, quote, women are stupid and inferior to men and should just shut their, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this word, Braxton, their um, uh, waddling like a duck mouths. Uh, his words, of course, not mine. Now, I don't fault Mr. Amazing Atheist for using this section of scripture to browbeat Christians over the head. Uh, it's an easy verse to use for that purpose, especially in English, and especially since many Christians today kind of use these verses to bar women from ministerial leadership. To make the point more sharp, I mean, many Christians today inadvertently kind of grant his premise that these verses do indeed teach what he explicitly calls explicit sexism. Although I think most Christians would quibble with how he says it, but in conclusion, or rather in principle, they essentially grant his premise. Uh, so I think these Christians should be a little more aware of the interpretive ground they're actually conceding here by arguing in that way. So for example, if Mr. Amazing Atheist, that's what I'll call him, I don't know his name, actually sees my response here, where do you think he's going to go to buttress his arguments or refute me? Uh, he's probably going to go to Christians who agree with him in principle. Um, so I think that's something to think about just as we approach this text. I have at least five reasons why Mr. Amazing Atheist is wrong about his reading. And that's all essentially he does is just read the text and then go off on a video game tangent, which incidentally I'm cool with. Um, more could be mentioned, but I think five is sufficient because I plan on playing NHL 20 and listening to Christmas music once I hit this little button here and end this. So point number one. The negated finite verb translated in his translation, I suffer not a woman, or more commonly, I am not permitting. It's not, you know, I suffer not or I do not permit. Uh, some presume that this verse refers to all eternity. Uh, the present tense form of the verb suggests a temporary or temporal prohibition against women who are teaching false doctrine. Therefore, it wouldn't be an eternal prohibition because the verb itself does not grant that. Uh, you can see the heterodox that caused Paul, who I do think wrote at least some of the pastoral epistles, if not all of them, to pen this thing in the first place. 
you know, why we, we, uh, we need to ask why this is actually being written. It's not just popping in out of a vacuum. Um, so, for example, we have people who talk or teach about false doctrines, myths, and promote controversies in chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. These people are basically ignorant of what they're talking about in 1, 7. They're following deceptive spirits in 4, 1. Are hypocrites and liars, 4, 2. And proffer what's falsely called knowledge in chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. Similar statements concerning women in the pastorals who are probably enmeshed in this false teaching, if not propagating in the false teaching, include their testimony, which, quote, gives the enemy opportunity for slander in 514, myths, 47, uh, quote, talking about things they do not know in 513, and some have already, quote, turned aside to follow Satan in 515. So Paul is responding to all of this, and he includes the women who are presumably amongst the echelon of false teachers. And what I think is interesting here, just as a means to talk about this, he begins with an imperative. Paul does. Learn. Let the women learn, or the women must learn. There's an emphatic emphasis here. Uh, the women who are ignorant of doctrine, who are saying the things they ought not, who are engaging in heterodox teaching, are to be quiet and to learn. That's a good counter to false teaching right off the bat. Learning. Uh, if someone believes something that is false, I would hope they would be quiet and learn from people who know what they're talking about. And chances are these women did. Second point that he's wrong about, the language of have authority or usurp authority, as in his translation of 1 Timothy 2.12, is lexically imprecise. And what I mean by that is the word here in Greek is commonly used to describe murderers in Wisdom of Solomon, a second temple Jewish text, and in Philo of Alexandria, a contemporary of Paul. Uh, and it's used to describe uh, someone who domineers in, by means of killing his younger brother. And it's a negative word describing a negative attitude that ultimately, in some cases, leads to violence. And so it's Paul's, not Paul's common word for authority uh, or basic authority or what have you, and instead probably refers to a controlling or violent or, we might say, uh, domineering attitude. Uh, why else would you prohibit something that you, if you thought it's a negative thing? Right, so why would he? You know, Paul can't. So Paul can't be prohibiting something positive because you don't prohibit positive things. And so Paul elsewhere rules out authority, of course, on the basis of gender. And if you read First Corinthians seven, you see that. And so Paul here is prohibiting women from being controlling over and against men, perhaps their husbands, because the Greek word can mean males as male or husbands it can go either way, and it's all context there. Either way, the point is the same. Pretty simple. You bar people from teaching when they are teaching falsehoods and they are ignorant. And the solution is, well, they are to learn. Learning corrects ignorance and deception, or at least in principle. The third response is the appeal to Adam and Eve that showcases a biblical or what we might call historical example in Paul's eyes of what happens when someone is deceived. Eve was deceived. Stop. That's a cat. Eve was deceived and messed up. Uh, an atheist can deny the point about God, creation, heaven, Eve, and all of that, but still see how a narrative is supposed to read or function. You don't have to grant Paul's premises that he believes in God, but you have to grant his premise about how he's trying to communicate using his assumptions of these things. Uh, so, for example, deception, of course, is common in Paul's letters. You can see it all over the place, people being deceived. That's why you have most of Paul's letters, because someone was deceived and started doing stupid stuff. And Paul's like, hey, don't do stupid stuff. Um, and so that being is essentially this sort of deception is not a gender specific thing. It's not intrinsically female to be easily deceived or deceived at all. Um, although some might argue that out of ignorance, but rather the use of Eve and Adam is an example of controlling or independent activity. A deceived person made a mistake, Eve. And Adam was of course with her if you read Genesis. Uh, Paul elsewhere holds both Adam and Eve responsible for their failures, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, here he says the women are behaving like Eve. That's a great example. He tells the entire church in 2 Corinthians 11.3 not to be deceived like Eve, which would include telling men to not be deceived. So this presumes that men and women together are, are, de are easily deceived, but it's not an ontic or a, a gender-specific thing. People are easily deceived, or people are deceived, or deceivable, probably is a better way of saying it. Deception bad, learning good. Um, again, gender doesn't determine one's cognitive capacity to learn or to understand or to grow or to be deceived, unless one wants to agree with Mr. Amazing Atheist's misreading. The fourth response is that once people have learned, they are permitted to teach. 2 Timothy 2.2 talks about those who are being able to teach or being entrusted, you know, faithful people, which uses an inclusive term for humanity, anthropos, and not of men specifically, which is used in 1 Timothy 2.11, andros or aner, meaning male-male, not just person. Uh, and so, uh, because the women were told to adopt a learning posture in this text that Mr. Amazing Atheist talks about, this implies that they fulfilled this requirement by the writing of 2 Timothy, if we believe that Paul wrote them in sequence. If Paul wanted to be consistent, he would have used a male-centric term here in 2 Timothy 2.2, but he doesn't. 
Ergo, women are not denied the office or the capacity to teach, provided they've learned, alongside men. The use of male or female examples, of course, doesn't negate the other. For example, do not covet your neighbor's wife does not implicitly grant that you are permitted to covet your neighbor's husband, or vice versa. Men being angry, for example, does not imply that women are allowed to be angry. It's basic context. The fifth response is, I think, rather mundane, it appears a little bit of thought and coherence, and I've gone on a little long, so I apologize. Um, nowhere else in the ancient world do we see such a radical egalitarian just ideology. Paul says that neither spouse, for example, has sovereignty over their own bodies, but they yield it to one another in, in sexual relations, but also in sanctification and in holiness and all those sorts of stuff in 1 Corinthians 7, specifically 3 to 4. Women are apostles in 16.7. That's disputed by people who don't know anything. Uh, Deacons are women are deacons in Romans 16 1 to 2 that'd be Phoebe and in 1st Timothy 3 11 and church leaders in Philippians 4 2 to 3 where Chrysostom calls them the chiefs or heads of the church Additional issues in Paul's own theology I think present mr. Amazing atheists and many Christians who agree with them with a problem His radical theology of baptism includes a transformation of one's identity that breaks down the stereotypes of that We see this of course in Galatians 328 and elsewhere baptismal formulas are an inclusive act that say because you are now in Christ What the world has said about you no longer applies and that of course applies to slavery and to all these other things And I think Paul was very radical on slavery as well, but that is of course a separate thing uh, Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit 1 Corinthians 12 Ephesians 4 Romans 12 um, as empowering both men and women towards service together without adding, of course, the additional element of, yes, but women are inferior. You don't see any sort of genderedness like that in Paul when he talks about the Holy Spirit empowering people with gifts to perform in church to lead and teach. I think if we're open, then the skeptic skepticism is undermined just radically, uh, and sex, the charge of sexism in the New Testament becomes an argument, I would argue, of the desperate and the uninformed. So unless one is willing to affirm his conclusion, that is, Mr. Amazing Atheist, I imagine those of a more open mind want to be challenged, I think, by the genius of Paul, uh, who did not exclude women as inferior or as second-class citizens, or through means of goofy uh, expletives. Uh, but I think Paul promoted them, empowered them, and worked alongside them in the cause of the gospel, and did not, uh, we might say, go the route that Mr. Amazing Atheist does by silencing them, or uh, we might say talking down to them. And of course, there is much more to be said about this, but that's just my reading of what Mr. Amazing, Amazing Atheist says. And so, tag back in, Braxton. Thank you. All well and good. I know that's so, not your take, but... But um, yeah, I, I, I typically agree with Nick on this, this sort of issue. We might have some different nuances to arrive at the same conclusion. But um, one of the things that I'd also point out about Paul's very egalitarian attitude is that he'll call out women just like he calls out men because he's an equal opportunity offender. So Yeah, so the, the reason I wanted to do that is because, first of all, I can't think of a person who would be better suited to m make the case for uh, the egalitarian reading of that passage than our friend who's dealing with that. But then secondly, um, I, you know, I, I also uh, want people to know, I want to highlight, because I know there's some people that are listening going to be like that. I had a guy when I mentioned it I last time say, <laughs> some of these some of these, because uh, I said something like some Christians believe, don't worry about what some Christians believe. Stand on what you believe. That's the whole point. I believe we think in community in the Christian faith, and we work these things out together, and we argue with each other about them. And it's we're, we're not self-conscious about that. I don't have uh, Nick's exact position. You don't have his exact way of getting to that position, yeah. like you said, but uh, it's okay. It's fine. Right. But now you've heard a great egalitarian explanation of that passage. Uh, what do I say normally about evolution, just to rob people up? You say that it's stupid. Yeah, but you know what I like to read? Take a get well, guess of what book I like to read. I don't know. Dune. No, about evolution. <laughs> I liked The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. That was a well-written book. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with a word of it. Now, The God Delusion is a poorly argued book, but it's still somewhat mildly entertaining. But you know what? I, the reason why I say it's a bad book, not because of its terrible writing, but of its terrible arguments, you know, because I, I sought to understand what I'm reading. I didn't just want to make fun of the God delusion like some people do. I want to understand what he's arguing and why it's poorly argued. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, even if he agreed, let's say that he is like uh, other atheists who say, I agree with the Christian reading of the Bible that says that this is the right theological conclusion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even if he was a complementarian type guy, 
say he wasn't just a loudmouth atheist guy on YouTube, but he was like one of those atheists on YouTube who says, now, I don't, I'm not a Christian, but I agree with these Christians. Like, let's say he agreed with you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That would still be better than, and, and, and give him more thought, put more thought into actually trying to understand this ancient text than what this guy is, is giving. I don't treat literature of other religions with the kind of disdain that he's showing the Bible. Right. Uh, but he's doing it for entertainment purposes. Yeah, he's a provocateur. Right. It would be foolish for me to get on the internet and say, here's 10 crazy verses from the Quran. Are there verses that you could do that from the Quran? Yes, there are. Um, but I don't know that I would get on there and, and try to just throw it out there without trying to have done any sort of literary analysis to the right you can't read one thing in isolation and be like there that's why this is stupid right right Right. at least hear what they have to say about it all right let's keep trucking with the atheist that is amazing Number eight leviticus 26 27 through 30 if in spite of all this you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile towards me then in my anger i will be hostile toward you and i myself will punish you for your sins seven times over you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters i will destroy your high places cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your (laughs) idols and I will abhor you. These sound like they're either the lyrics to a death metal song or something Hannibal Lecter would say to one of his victims before he kills them in some horribly complex way. Number seven, except, Deuteronomy um, 25, 11 through 12. Except Hannibal Lecter would be the one who's doing the eating. Yahweh didn't say that he was going to eat them. He said they would eat each other. Uh, but but right. notice uh, when you, the the line runs that this is I'm going to punish you and this is what that punishment is going to look like. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm going to uh, you know I'm going to start manipulating things to where y'all end up doing these and I'm making this happen. Right. Like you're my action. The way that Yahweh causes things of yeah. punishment oftentimes is he uses some other nation as a chastening rod. You know, in other words, he allows some other nation to do what perhaps he was preventing them to do before and allows them now to do it. And that's a punishment. Um, This, this happened and it happened. uh, This was a prophetic judgment passage, frankly, Uh, this happened at the siege of Samaria in the times of Joram in second Kings six 29. It happened at the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And uh, this, this is something that tended to happen in times of famine. And and when you're in, in, when the enemy is all around you and you have no way to get food, when when I withhold my grace and blessing, this is what you're going to do to each other. And I'm going to allow it as punishment. Right. And I'm going to think it's disgusting because it is. Right. That's what that's that's what this passage means. And the thing is, don't do that stuff. Right. Yeah. Right? Don't do it, and don't mess with Yahweh. If you smoke, if you smoke uh, three packs a day, you may get lung cancer. And what's going to happen is horrible, you know, pain and suffering yes, and blah blah it blah is blah horrible. and all that. Look how horrible that sounds. Like something Hannibal Lecter would say to someone before he kills them. No, it sounds like a warning of judgment that may come, or at least yeah. of, of consequences right. that may come if you do something to yourself. Yeah, don't smoke cigarettes. Yeah, that's what we take away from that. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show no pity. Okay, I'll handle this one real quick because this was in the last video with Mr. Atheist. And simply put... Um, the the word for hand that's used in the passage can refer to any concave part of an object or the human body, and it's it it, it sometimes refers to uh, the hip socket or a woman's sexual organs. And the word for cut is actually the word that would be used for pluck or shave or something like that. So what some scholars think, because if this was actually talking about cutting off someone's hand, it would be the only place where you had something like that. So it seems like what what's going on here is, remember, one-to-one correspondence in the Mosaic Law. So she humiliated him publicly. She's humiliated publicly. How? Uh, 
she has to shave her pubic region. Now, is that weird? Yes, it's weird. Do people in the 21st century Western world think that would be demeaning to a woman? I'm sure they do, and I sympathize. The point is, it's not nearly as extreme as what it sounds like when you read it in these modern translations like this. Well, moreover, though, I mean, it's a in boxing, you know, that's just below the belt. Just, right. you know, I mean— you just grab his ear or something if you want to save your husband. But no, no need to, no need to fight dirty. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, seriously, we're gonna get. Like I said, there's so many verses that could have been in here that aren't in here, and I'll, I'll get to. I'll, I'll okay. mention something. Let's later. keep trucking. This is. This is it would be pretty life. hard to not show any pity. Handy. Number six, Mark fourteen fifty one through fifty two. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Not much to say about that. It's just funny. Number five. Uh, I have something uh, to say actually, about it. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Do you have something to say? No, it, I'm just saying it's what happened. I do believe it's what happened. Uh, What's interesting is, there's actually a lot to say about this. This is a fascinating thing. Thank you, Mr. Amazing Atheist. Um, but here's the thing. So I do believe this actually happened, and I think that's why Mark put it in. But we know something about Greco-Roman biography, and that is that they don't just put stuff in for no reason, right? right? They're trying to paint a picture um, and and sh and say something about what's going on or about the person or all those yeah, sorts of things. I, it illuminate things. It yeah. doesn't mean that it didn't really happen. I believe it did really happen, but it is interesting that Matthew and Luke, who use uh, portions of rely on portions of Mark, yeah. don't include this. Right. Um, why did Mark include it? Well, simply put, we don't know. But do we have clues? I think we do have clues. This passage comes. First of all, some scholars have tried to figure out who they think that was. Like, was that Mark trying to include himself in the story somewhere? Was that, uh, you know, uh, somebody else? They've named everybody in the world. It's just like when you're trying to figure out who the author of Hebrews is. Every imaginable biblical New Testament character has been posited. But shout right? out to David Allen for picking Luke. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be cool if it was Apollos, just because I'd like him to have a book. But anyway, uh, here, here's the thing. Uh what it might be, this this happens, Dr. Pritchett, in the passage right after the betrayal by Judas. So if we're thinking of what is Mark could Mark be trying to convey is, okay, he's just been betrayed by Judas. We know what happens with the other disciples. Um, it's a, it's it, not that it didn't actually happen, but it's a fitting image for the shameful way right. in which they fled from him. Yes. in this moment of need, that they left even their clothes. It's like in your naked shame, you ran away from your Lord. Right, and it's highlighting that. Yeah. Because that would be, in honor, that is shame to walk around naked. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the people who dress very poorly go to Walmart that end up being memes mm -hmm. who have no shame. You know, it's, it's, to, it's to hammer home how awful and shameful that behavior was. Now, do I know for sure that's why he included it? No, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense. And the thing is, with that genre, Greco-Roman biography, we can look for things of great depth like that, that this artist who is giving us this biography is bringing out in everything that he includes. Yeah. Or you can read it the way that The Amazing Atheist does and just say, that's crazy, and that's move on. Funny. Five, Ezekiel 4.15. Same here. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. Wow! Thanks, God! That's so nice of you! Number. Okay, so what do you want to say about this? Well, that was nice of you all way. It was nice. What's going on is, as you know, is that God is playing out a drama for his people to see through this prophet, as he literally visibly plays out what's going to happen, right. including building a model of Jerusalem and putting, you know, the siege instruments around yeah, it. Yeah, and you know? acting out the whole world. Yeah. It's like playing with army figures. Right. Yeah. And then, and what, you know, why is this a good thing? Well, While tied up, by the way. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then he's tied up and he yeah. has to lay on one, on one, one side, side of his body. Yeah. Now, why is all of this being done? Well, think about it. This is actually pretty pragmatic. You didn't have YouTube so that he could make a video saying, uh, you all, this is all going to be destroyed in judgment by Yahweh. You don't have anything like that. So what do you do? 
you do stuff like this, and you know what? It doesn't take very long before people start saying in town, did you hear about this weird guy out in the... Crazy. What is he doing? Yeah. He's doing some weird stuff. Let's go see what he's doing. He's been laying here for like days and days and days, you know, yeah. and, and all like this I kind said, of thing. everyone... How can you not love the book of Ezekiel? Mm -hmm. It is fascinating. So that actually would have been a practical way of getting people to yeah. pay attention to what you're saying, is you're doing some is weird drama. Yeah, but... Have you ever seen performance art? Yeah. I mean, seriously. Now, it is extreme, which shows the urgency and the seriousness of this. He's going to bake his food over human excrements. And he says, I've never had anything unclean, Yahweh. And so Yahweh says, all right, well, then use cow dung. Okay. But the point is there's something of great depth and ultimately beauty in this. And the symbols. And symbolic and all these kind of things. Uh, or you can just kind of read one passage about out of it and isolate that and be like, there's doo-doo in this passage. Ha, 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 yeah. basically. Well, there is doo-doo in the passage, it's, it, but appreciate it. Appreciate <laughs> yeah. what's going on here because right. it's great. You know, how can you yeah. not like the book of Anyway. Here we go. Number four, Zechariah 13.3. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. Yes, these are the consequences of what happens if we, the same thing. Yeah, don't mess with Yahweh. Yeah. Number three, Genesis 16.7 through 9. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. All of Genesis 16 is actually pretty... Abram's wife, Sarah, is infertile. And so Sarah says to Abram, you know what? Uh, I can't give you any kids, so you can just rape one of my slaves. I got this slave named Hagar, and you can... And Abram's like, isn't that the unfunny Viking from the comic strips? And she's like, no, no, it's, it's a chick. It's a weird name, but, you know, go... And Abram goes... And he rapes the slave and he impregnates her. And then once the slave is pregnant, she gets upset because I, I don't know why. And then she she starts acting up, apparently. And, and Sarah's like, oh, my slave is acting up. Abram, what should I do? And he's like, I don't You're a slave. Do whatever you want. And so Sarah starts abusing Hagar or Hagar or whatever is. And, uh, and because she's being abused, she runs away. And that's where this verse uh, leads into is the angel of the Lord saying, don't run away from your abusive slave masters who raped you and gave you this unwanted pregnancy. Instead, go back to them so that you can bear them a son named Ishmael, who everyone will hate and will be against everyone. So it all works out in the end. Thanks, Bible. And by the way... Yeah, not the worst paraphrase, but pretty close. Yeah, so... Not not not, not as bad as the <clears throat> message, but... No, I'm just kidding. Now, you've been asking me, Jonathan, some questions, so I'm going to ask you. What did God ultimately want them to do and want to give them? Uh, to be patient and believe the promise of the Lord that, Sarah, that, that Abraham would have a son... Who, through whom, you know, the promise, the would, promise come. would come. Isaac was going to be right. that son. And, and 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 did he tell them to do any of this stuff that he just read? No, they try. Sarah, as you uh, put it before, tries to help God out. Yeah. Because nowhere did poor God. He's old. Yeah. He doesn't understand. Right. Nowhere did did God give any instructions to them to do anything like this of the sort. This right. is them acting on their own. Right. The only thing that you could complain about, I guess, is that, yeah, what the angel of the Lord says to, to Hagar. But understand that, again, this wasn't the 21st century Western world. It's not like she could go to, I guess, go to what, what I would imagine 
someone like the amazing atheist would think is she could go to Planned Parenthood and then she could go get a job and then she could go live in an apartment and then she could make friends and then she could climb the corporate ladder and become a symbol of feminism. It's not that's yeah. not the world we live in. But even taking, in the ancient world, yeah, taking out the theological import of mm-hmm. Isaac, mm-hmm. you know, and we know from there comes Jacob and the whole line that inevitably leads to the Messiah and all of this other stuff. And then we're all children of the promise. All let's take all of that theology out for a second. Why is it bad to be barren in the ancient world? And why is it important to have offspring? It is important. That's your lineage. Yeah. Well, and that's also who's going to provide for you. When you get old. When you get old. Yeah. That is your security. Yeah. You know? Um, so I, it's important. And, and it, it's also a sign of honor. And it's also a sign of shame if you don't have children. And it's still that way in... In uh, modern countries, did you know that when I received um, Olu Koliosho's biography or, you know, little life story testimony thing that he gave me so that I could work some of that into my commencement speech when I went and did that in Houston, he's a graduate. Um, Do you know what he said? That after so many years of marriage, uh, my mother finally had a son, which he was talking about himself, which removed her shame. Hmm. That's what he wrote, as if wow. that was normal. Yeah. Because, you know, there, there's an importance to having but offspring. That, now, that's not to say that we think you should feel shame, like that that's the ideal, that you should feel shame if you can't have children. No, but... The point it, is, that's the way people back then thought. And that's so the way for Hagar... Many, that's the way many people outside of America still think in their right. in other nations. And so for Hagar, there there was perhaps some benefit in her mind about this, as awful as that may sound to Western ears in the 21st century. But then on top of that, going back with Abram and I mean, and if you Sarai, want to go insult many people on the continent of Africa for their not thinking the way he thinks, you know, modern... Africans. Yeah. The, yeah. Go ahead. So the the thing about it is, the best thing for Hagar, practically speaking, would not be to wander the desert or try to find some other people group to as a pregnant woman to fall in with. Yeah. It would be go back to the kingdom of Abraham. Now, why do I say the kingdom of Abraham? I say that because not because that's what it was, but because basically that's what it was. When you see, if you had seen Abram walking through the desert with his entourage it would very much look like a small nation of people. I mean, you've got all these servants and all these people and all this stuff. There was a there was a communal structure there, large that, there. Yeah, that would have been that would have been a good place for her to go. And God does promise her that yes, even though this son Ishmael, here's what's going to happen with him. Yeah, well at first it's go back, but then then uh, then later in the story she's told yeah. to leave and Abraham, yeah. you know, Abraham didn't actually want that to happen, but then yeah. said, yeah, go ahead. Listen right. to listen to what right. your, God tells Abraham. Listen mm-hmm. to what your wife says and so forth. Uh, and Hagar becomes the first person in the entire Bible to give Yahweh a name. Yep. She calls him the God who sees because God comes to her and comforts her and says, guess what? This All this is going to happen to you and your son. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, oh, everyone's going to hate Ishmael. He's going to be a strife of anyone. He's also going to be a very great nation. Mm-hmm. And everything's going to be okay. So. so why why did God choose that she should go back at that point and then later go? I don't know. But God's sovereign. He's got it figured out. Yep. And right. guess what? It turned out okay. Yep. All right. But That's that good. wasn't God's ideal scenario to happen. Yeah, in none of this place. stuff that you're saying was yeah. crazy is what God wanted. If we'd done what God wanted, none of this would have ever happened. But what it is, is it's that's what happened. And it's, they're just telling the story. And again, as we've said before in videos like this one, just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean God's in favor of it having happened. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of things that happened that he tells us he wasn't in favor of. Right. We have the words of Satan in the Bible. That does, Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right? Number two, 1 Peter 2.18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So just in case anyone thinks that last story I told doesn't prove that the Bible endorses slavery, here's just a much more explicit God says, Slaves, obey your masters. Okay, so... What does the very next verse say, though? That it's unjust. Yeah. That, you know... You're in a situation that's unjust, and God's going to favor you because of it. Yeah, it's one thing to to be punished by, you know, the harsher slave masters for when you're in the wrong, but when you're in the right and you're 
punished. It's unjust. Oh, and guess what? God will give you favor for that. Uh, now you're like Jesus because Jesus was unjustly you know, right. uh, put to death, and Jesus suffered. Mm-hmm. And and so you're being like Jesus because you you might have to suffer now slavery in in the Greco-Roman world okay in the Roman Empire in some places as many as one in five people were slaves and the, they were anything from everything from chattel to administrators I mean you know or tutors or whatever mm-hmm. slaves did all kinds of different things it wasn't all like the American South mm-hmm. there were slaves who were chattel mm-hmm. but that was and, and the Bible does not condone that anywhere we've done videos showing that. Completely. If you want to know what God thinks of chattel slavery, look at what he did to Egypt. So, so now, Yeah, and he constantly says, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Right, and right? this is why you're going to not treat Do that. People. Right, yeah. and that carries over the New Testament. But what he's saying is, saying, don't do anything to desert. This is the reality of the Greco-Roman world. The reality that Peter is writing into is, yeah, you might be a slave. And, of course, the biblical message is, get free if you can, but if not, you know, do this because this is honorable behavior and it pleases God and God reach will, people. The, the goal yeah. is by being, it's unjust the situation you're in. The, yes. the passage tells us that, right? And God favors you for that. The in that, in one. that, in that setting, be honorable. And the goal I, I contend is that these is that the people who observe that will come to Christ because in the very beginning of the next chapter, and as everyone knows, the chapters and verses weren't originally there. We see that this is what is said to a wife. Uh, who's got a husband who's not a believer right. is that she is to serve in silence, uh, not, you know, to, to be a good woman in, in silence, but living out this, this faith so that her husband might convert. You know, that's, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. The idea is that she'll, uh, is, is that this is an evangelism opportunity in both cases. The goal is not that women should have to be uh, subjugated. And the goal is not that slaves should have to be slaves. The goal is that if you're in these situations, yeah. here's what you should do. Yeah. Here, here, you know, just be obedient and be good so that you don't, so that all of your punishments that you may get are unjust. Yeah. Don't deserve them is what, you know, so this is the reality of your situation. This is the, the calling in which you recall is what Paul would say mm-hmm. uh, in First Corinthians. He said, this is, you know, this is where you're at. This is the reality of the world. Be like this so that you're a good example and that, you, you know, that, that anything that happens to you is unjust and not, you know, this is how you right. speak. Because that's the reality of the world they are in. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like, and, and by the way. God's going to give you a lot of grace, and, and you're, you're being just like Jesus. So and understand the context of First Peter is that we are in a situation here. This was, this was a cyclical letter written to the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the idea was, depending on when you date the letter, persecution is coming or it is currently happening. And so given that you're being persecuted, here's how you should yeah, act. And, and because um, I believe, along with John Calvin, well, he's one who agrees. Uh, I, I like to point out where I agree with Calvin when yeah. I can, but uh, a lot of people don't think that he was writing to Jewish audiences. Calvin and me, we, you know, and, and other scholars believe that he was writing to Jews, to his primarily a largely Jewish audience. It's not saying that it was exclusively Jews in the diaspora, but he was writing to large, predominantly Jewish audiences who were getting, I mean, not the, the worst persecution that was to come eventually, but they were persecuted, you know, social persecution and probably maybe some beatings or whatever. You're getting it from the pagans and you're getting it from the Jews who didn't convert to Christianity. You're getting it from both sides. So you're right. like the worst of the worst. Plus, so chances, it, chances are, and you can go see my intro to First Peter in my commentary, you know, plus they were probably not citizens of the... Uh, uh, city-states or, or, or the towns or whatever they're living. Citizenship's a complicated thing. I unpack all that. And so then you have that on top of uh, you have no citizenship uh, in the place, you, town or city where you live. You have, you have persecution from the pagans. You have persecution from the uh, Jews who didn't convert. And your life might stink. So given yeah. that context of yeah. persecution, things are not as they should be. And in the context of things are not as they should be, here's how you should function as a believer in the one true God. And by the way, when you get to verse 15 of chapter 3, uh, you should be ready and willing always to give an answer or a defense to anyone who asks you a reason why you believe this stuff, why you have this hope. Despite all this bad stuff happening to mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Amen. So you just had to keep reading is all it was. All right, last thing. Moment in the Bible, Ezekiel 23, 20. 
She lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose omissions was like that of horses. Okay, we don't need his colorful commentary. Right now, by the way, let me just tell you, I called uh, a former president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, Dr. Tom Rogers, last night, and I was talking to him about this passage, Mm -hmm. and he said, I don't want to say too much about it because my wife is sitting here at the table (laughs) with me. Right. Yeah, when I was a youth pastor at Antioch Community Church out in Antioch, Arkansas, right outside mm-hmm. of BB, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I want to get kids interested in the Bible, it's passages like these that I go to and say, everything you like is in the Bible. Everything that you find in, you know. You know and what we did was... And that's those, why you're not a youth pastor right. anymore. And, when, when, <laughs> and uh, in front of the, the pulpit is the do this in remembrance of me table, you know. Yeah. And it's got the flowers and it's got this open Bible. Mm-hmm. And we turned the Bible to Ezekiel 23, the big, large print, big, large Bible. Mm-hmm. And I bet you if you were to go, this was years ago. I bet you if you go there, it's still there because nobody ever messed with that Bible. And that's why you're not a pastor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, yeah, uh, he gets everything about this wrong. Number one, he didn't read verse 4. Yeah, if we were to play the rest of the commentary, which the original video is linked, but understand there's a lot of language in the original commentary. But yeah, he's thinking this is an individual woman that's being discussed. Again, with this, it's much deeper than the surface level sniping of verses. Ohalah is Samaria, and Ohalaiba is Jerusalem, representing those being the capitals that represent the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, right? And he's talking about their behavior He's, it's hyperbolic metaphor. Their behavior is like these two sisters, right? Uh, this is it's a metaphor for the behavior of what God sees Israel and Judah acting like, right? Mm-hmm. So when he says, and she probably got punished for, for that, yeah, if she, by that you mean Israel, because they the very people that they're prostituting themselves to, eventually he talks about being subjugated by them, right? right? You're going to get what you want you know mm-hmm. these the way he describes them as donkeys you know i'm trying to be look the bible is not a g-rated book it's just not it this passage is there um you can giggle at it and it you there's a part of me that's a little boy that does giggle at it you know it's like doo-doo right mm-hmm. we like you said earlier always yeah. mentioning that verse because has doo-doo in it yeah uh, you know, uh, malachi 2 3 has doo-doo in it and it's you know you're always going to spread dung in their faces right and there's part of you that's like yeah wow there's also part of you that's like yikes he's pretty mad you know yeah. Yeah. in fact i uh, on my facebook post one of the old posts you know how people used to they would take a picture of a guy on a beach or a woman on a beach holding their hands up in worship and they'd have some little bible verse i actually put malachi 2 3 with that kind of panoramic <laughs> in the background and see if anyone would notice it right yeah um did anyone notice uh the clever ones yeah, yeah. yeah. uh but but yeah so i get it I get it that there are verses like this that make you sit up straight. That's why they're there. You're supposed to pay attention and find out what is going on in this. Yeah, if you just stop at laughing at it and then you turn that into mockery instead of understanding the literary value and qualities of, of these types of things, it's very shallow. And like I said, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm not as much of a snob as he is a snob towards ancient literature. Uh, I'm not as much of a snob about people like him who don't want to even try to understand things. Or just doing it for petty shock value. Um, but I am snobby about that. Well, in closing yeah. out, why did I feel like this was a video that needed a response? I'll tell you why. Because there are people who are, you know, reasonable, intelligent people who wouldn't otherwise be ignorant, who aren't aware, uh, perhaps, of the rich scholarship there is out there on these and all other passages in the Bible. And so what they do is they see a video like this with from a provocateur, and they think, man, that is pretty stupid. And then they never give it a second thought. Yeah, but there's a lot, like I said, in, in a lot of ancient and modern literature, there's a lot of things that you could isolate sure. and, and then just do this kind of cheap trick type mm-hmm. stuff, you know? And... and and like I said, I'm somewhat of a snob about this because I, I think that we should try to appreciate stuff like mm-hmm. that. I don't, I don't do that to ancient literature. I, I find it interesting. There is a, the little boy in me that wants to giggle at it, but not mock it. I don't right. have to agree with it yeah. to, not, to appreciate it. Like I said, there's a lot of atheists who appreciate the Bible. 
All right. Well, um, uh, so that's the end of this episode. We'd like to encourage you to check out the other shows in the Trinity Commission. And so you can check out uh, the Bible Brodown um, with Billy Wendell and Matt Chisholm. Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers. The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. And uh, did I cover everybody? So far, but we might we might actually get around to having these newbies actually start, and we'll, we'll yeah. we need to hammer that out so that we can stop saying that and just say who they are. By the way, if you'd like to support this program and help us respond to atheist videos on the internet, whether they're the highbrow atheists or just the dumb stuff like this, you can click up here in the top left-hand corner. Uh, well, that's not going to work because I'm on the screen different. In the top right-hand corner of the screen, you can click, and if you're listening by audio or you're watching, you can go to patreon.com slash trinity radio and we would greatly appreciate it and there is some free stuff and some free books in there but don't do it because you want the free stuff because you might not like the free stuff do it because you believe in what we're doing and we'll see you next time on trinity radio trinity radio